So I want to I want to kind of end this time together, and I'd like for you to turn with me to Exodus chapter four. And I know this may sound negative, but I've discovered it is my greatest positive. And I want to talk to you about the lack within a leader. Um, I, I think it is so important to be so intentional about looking for somebody around you. I've told our team, I don't say it to them or to, and I say it to myself, uh, but I, I tell everybody this. I, I tell them every one of us, including myself, we are the interim pastors here. And I was at our church prior before I was in the revival there. Uh, I was in a, a, a revival there that we, Brenda and I, we traveled every week for 21 years. I've been in a different church every week of my life for 21 years, my first 21 years of ministry. So I went from everything from a, a, a large church to the rural communities, to the urban areas. I saw it all and I just became a student. I don't know why I was a student, but it would subsequently lead me to pastoring. And, uh, and, I, and I was in every kind of church when I started my evangelistic ministry. I will kid you not, I was in Monta Vista, Colorado. I remember it. I was single then because I would not drag my wife into something like that. And uh, I went and I remember my first revival was four people, y'all. Four people. That's why I'm a pastor, not an accountant. Four people. Four people. That was it. And I got up to preach and I had to decide, is this really what I'm called to do? And I stayed with my previous job 21 years. And, uh, and four people. And I preached it like... Man, I, I, I preached it like I was in the hugest stadium in the world. And I decided I slept, went up stairs and slept in a little room they had, came back down the next day, and I just watched as God, people started showing up, and boy, they started coming in like the droves. Two more drove in. It was great. I never looked back. I want to stay to my original purpose, my original intent to bring people to Christ and equip them to be like him. And one of the things that I've always done in this is that I've decided that the greatest thing I can do is perceive myself as an interim pastor. I've been at this church now. It's my first and my only pastor. I decided I wanted to pastor one time, and when I did it, I would stay no matter what, but it had to be God's call on the place because I would have to endure anything that came. So I've stayed there 18 years as a pastor, but I was there five years as an evangelist preaching every Friday and Sunday night along Pastor Wayne Benson during a great outpouring of revival. We saw thousands of people come to Jesus Christ. It's one of the most funnest times of our ministry and for our kids when we got to make community. And I stayed in that city for five years. Now, remember, I was an evangelist. I'm not dissing evangelist, but I could hone every message I had. I had, I, uh, uh, I had five good sermons because we went Sunday through Friday, Wednesday preaching. So I had five good sermons, and Brenda and I had five good outfits, and we were off to the next place. And I get stuck in this revival, and I preach for the next four and a half years on one subject. Every Friday and Sunday night, I had to preach on the subject of salvation because people were coming to Christ. I'm telling you, that was the toughest assignment of having to preach the same subject on salvation, and God gave us fruit. But when I came to pastor it, I always look at myself, not because I'm looking to go, but it intentionally makes me start seeking out who are the people that God is raising up. 
And most of the time when I use the word leader, people get real scared because it, it puts an onus on them that they feel like they cannot, they cannot achieve because you put that word leader. That's the reason why even with our small groups, we quit calling them small group leaders. We just call them small groups host. It's amazing how many people you can get when you change it from leader to host. Just push the button and it also takes away an authority that you may not want a person having that may be speaking on your behalf as a church. But anyway, but I've intentionally always looked for the leader, but every time we do, uh, and twice a year, I do a deal called Leader Lift, where I hand select 20 people, uh, tw uh, uh, 20 people, about 10 to 15 couples from across the board in our church that our leaders, our elders, our pastors have identified as people that just seem to have a real love for Jesus, a love for the church, and a love for the mission, and they get to spend six weeks with me uh, twice a year. And we just talk about leadership, but actually what we're teaching is about the passions and the things that make great leaders and are part of the value of what we see happening in the church. So we intentionally are looking because we always know God has to raise up the next generation. And every single time that I send out the letter, they're always nervous because they say, I just don't think that I have what it requires when you ask me to come to Leader Lift. And every single time, it's because they identify some lack, something in their life they think that is less than best. So it hinders them from keeping up and stepping up to what God has. And the reason I teach lack for a leader is because God's helping me identify the lack within Sam Reifkogel. But I've also discovered the lack has become the secret weapon that God has always used against my enemy. Isn't that crazy? So if you would, just for a moment, I want to take you to this passage of Scripture in Exodus. So I just want to give you a little context of, of what this is about right here this morning, the lack within you as a leader. <clears throat> and I want to take the story of Moses, <coughs> pardon me, Exodus chapter 4. Let's go there. You know the story. He's back on the backside of the desert. <coughs> He's running for his life. Now God's asking him to uh, tell Pharaoh, release the people so they can come and worship me. Then Moses said, what if they do not believe me or listen to what I say? There may you say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Who made you pastor? Oh, wait a minute. That's not there either. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, <clears throat> and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Can we drop down to verse 10? <clears throat> it says, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant. I figured if I encountered God, he would heal me of this lack, but he didn't. For I am slow of speech and slow of a tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. Every time you feel inadequate, you just need to read those passages of scriptures and it'll just light your board to get you back going again. 
Because what has to happen here is every leader needs to know that there is some area of lack in their life. It's very rare that sometimes people want to select it. Maybe they get intimidated. Maybe someone made fun of them because of the lack in their life, chastised them because they didn't do quite well. But every leader has some area of lack in their life. And recognizing the lack, recognizing it, which Moses did, teaches you reliance on God. And it is so interesting, it's so important that Moses even says, I'm not eloquent of speech. In fact, I'm slow of speech. I stutter. I have this. Can I just simply say that sometimes in ministry, even in corporate leadership, whatever it might be, even parenting, that this attitude is missing in leadership today? Is that there is something in my life and too many professionals think they know how to do everything or do certain things and the moment because they're they start getting good at it and the moment we start thinking we know how to do what God has called us to do it is the sure thing that you are going to fail I will never forget when I said yes to pastoring Grand Rapids first I had never pastored in my life I had five good sermons so I knew we could at least make it five Sundays But it put me in this place of desperation where I said, God, I have never done this before. I have never been this place before. And there's a location in my office that I still look out today. And I glance up at the building and I truly felt like Solomon in that moment where you feel so vulnerable. You say, I don't know what to do. And you start thinking like him in 1 Kings 3. And he says, now, Lord, now, oh, my Lord, you have made me your servant king. In this place of my father, yet I am but a child. I don't know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which have you have chosen, a great people who, who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And I have sat with that same desperation to this day, 18 years later, where I'm saying, God, I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to go out. You've got to give me wisdom on how to lead the great people that you have. I never want to come to this place where I have a vision that I know that I can obtain. I think there ought to be a vision that God gives you or it may be a situation that he imposes or puts in your path or some kind of a situation where it absolutely drives you to your knees because you don't know what to do, you don't know what to say, you have certain skill sets, but there ought to be a vision that is so strong in your heart that it drives you to fall to your knees and say, God, if you don't show us how to do this, it is not going to happen. Because I truly believe that God is not looking for, for professionals. I believe he's truly looking for broken, humble servants that will literally at the end of the day, they have skill, they have ability, they have talent, but they throw it down and say, God, this is not going to pull that off. I need you to show me what to do. And that's what happened to Moses because he was taught in the house of Pharaoh. He had the best of knowledge and teaching, but on this one, God, I don't know what to do. I need to have that. There has to be a place and if you don't have that place, God will put you in that place so that you have desperation for him. And what I love about this story is that there's several characteristics and truths about the leadership that Moses had that comes out of this. In fact, when you look at Moses, you know his name, Moses, literally means to be drawn out. 
and Pharaoh's daughter drew him up out of the Nile. But God called him Moses too, because God says, I know inside of this young man, even though he's lived in the finest that Egypt has to offer, there is something that needs to be drawn out of this guy that has not been drawn out of him. And I truly believe the same thing, that God has placed something in every leader that has to be drawn out of them. Ma'am, my dear brother, I'm telling you that God will put you in a place where something, the desperation gets so strong on you that you say, I have a lack. There's not enough money. I don't have the education. I don't have the energy. I don't have the health. I don't know what I'm going to do. But God will put you in a place where he's drawing something out of you that has never been drawn out before. How many are ready to let God draw some things out of you? But when it happens, when it happens, you're going to see God begin to let things surface that help you, that helps you deal with your lack. So I want to just give you a couple little things here that God gave him that you got to identify in the lack, in your lack. First of all is the leader's source. It's extremely important as a leader to know that God is your source. Now, I know that sounds very, everybody says, well, we all know that. We all know that. But it's interesting about Moses. When you read about him, God only says this about Moses in Numbers chapter seven, in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. He only says this about Moses. He says, of other prophets, he said, I have spoken through them through dreams and visions. But he said, with Moses, he said, I speak with him face to face. There was something about Moses that he had this face-to-face time with God. There was a proximity he had that others were not willing to have. And I honestly believe that every leader must have this face-to-face time with God. And I know the draw on us as leaders. I, I get it, especially those that are you raising children in the midst of leading parachurch ministries, in the midst of having to lead churches and youth groups. And you've got all these things pulling on you. But it seems like Moses had this face-to-face time with God where they were friends, where they were, they, 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 they were the ones that he knew exactly what he wanted. And this, I think, can happen to us in ministry. I will be honest with you. You can go, and they're wonderful to go to because they give you brilliant ideas. They've given me brilliant ideas. But you can go to enough conferences, and you can study enough stats, and you can get enough metrics, and you can, and you can get enough data, and you can get enough models and they're okay to have, but we can build churches and ministries without having face-to-face time with God. We've seen it done, and it's being done. But it has to come a time where we don't rely on the books, the graphs, the charts, the organizational models, where all of a sudden, at the end of the day, we pull away and we say, God, I have to have face-to-face time with you to know Is this truly what you desire for me to do, to lead your great people and to lead myself and to lead my household? There has to be where there's a tapping in to the source with God. And I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. But you have to find that time that is your time, that is in your outlook, that is on your alarm, that this is my time with God. This is it. It's not for finding a sermon. It's not for trying to dig for something next week. It is personally my time that I encounter and have face-to-face time with God. And it's time with him that he begins to draw out because he truly is your source. And it's in that time that you find the things God really desires from your heart as a leader. So he's got to be the source over any other things that we have. I love Acts 2 Journey. I love all the charts. I love going to all the conferences. But at the end of the day, 
I've got to have that face-to-face encounter with God because I'm discovered something. I have discovered something. Sometimes the greatest thing that God using in one place is not the God, the thing God wants you using in your place. I I, I don't know. I, I was at Grand Rapids first during the uh, outpouring at Brown's Revival. How many remember the Brown's Revival that happened? That was the same time that 1906 that I was with Wayne Benson during that time. And I just started noticing, and it was wonderful, the encounter with God, but it was also an observation of mine that every time somebody got encountered there, they would try to duplicate the same thing that happened in Florida and bring it into some community, and everybody started knee-jerking and saying, I don't know if that's what we're supposed to do here. And I loved what Pastor Wayne Benson did. He understood the culture, he understood the DNA, and he prayed, God, tell us what you want here. We believe you want an outpouring, but how is it supposed to fit here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a bunch of European Dutch people, how does this translate to them and how do you want us to bring it to them? And you know how he found that? He found it from encountering God and not only did we go through the revival, God blessed us out of the revival, we saw growth out of the revival, we saw maturity out of the revival because we had a pastor that went after the heart of God first. So you can take their ideas, but only with face-to-face time do you know, God, how does this work here for your great people. Then the Holy Spirit begins to show them something. They have to have the leader spirit. It's not just the leader source, it's the leader spirit. There ought to be something unique that God does in the heart of every leader that you're excited about, you're passionate about. It's great to get ideas from everybody else, but what is the Holy Spirit calling you about your parachurch ministry, your organization, your church? What is it that God is stirring up? This is what everybody likes to call the DNA of who we are. What is it that's unique about you? What is something in your spirit that God is calling you to do? What is something that is just passionate on your heart that the Holy Spirit, it's your uniqueness that God's called you to do? And that's what's happened at Grand Rapids first. I said, God, I thank you for all the models. I've learned so much from them. But what are you telling me about who Sam Reifgold and Brenda Reifgold are as leaders? And what spirit have you put on us that you want inside this church? What is it that you're asking for us? Because rather than duplicating from everybody, how many believe God is not a duplicator? How many believe God is the creator? And the more I get closer to the creator, the more I start learning about him, God, you may have me do something like someone else, but it may be a totally different way And we found things that God uniquely made for us. When you go to Grand Rapids first, I I know it was for us because it was what Brenda and I were before we became pastors. I traveled 21 years, told you as an evangelist. And one day I was with a pastor as an evangelist and it just lit me up what he was doing. And I said, wait a minute, I don't have to pastor a church. I don't need a title of pastor to do this. Leadership is not a title, it is a function. And I discovered people can lead and they don't need the title. And I said, I can do this. And God starts speaking to me about my own personal way of how am I engaging people. And Brendan and I sat there and we thought, how are we truly engaging people with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And here's what happened to us one time. And it became uniquely the DNA that God had been speaking about. We were living in our neighborhood. I was in the height of the revival. We saw over 17,000 people come to Jesus Christ. In, a, in about a four and a half, four year period of time. And I'm in my cul-de-sac and I noticed this one couple, they lived behind us and uh, I'd see them out every so often. 
And then I drove by one Sunday and I saw some of his items, his items going up for sale. Something, it was a dirt bike because I was in, I love dirt biking. And I saw his dirt bike out there and I saw another thing up for sale. And I told Brandon, I said, something's going on over there. I said, uh, I bet they got a divorce. I bet he, I bet they split up. Went to my house, went back to revival, preached from my pulpit. Everybody got excited. People got saved. It was a great day. Then two weeks later, I found out that he unexpectedly died of a heart attack instantly, young guy. And he just lived right behind me, and there was no fence between us. And the spirit-filled Holy Ghost tongue-talking preacher, his first discernment was they split up, I thought, the worst when they were going through the deepest, darkest tragedy of their life. And Brenda and I repented. I said, how heartless of a pastor or a leader could I be that the guy is in my backyard? And I think the worst. I don't even know their name. And Brenda and I looked over there and we saw it. How we knew that he died is the leaves were falling. How many know leaves, you know, is this part of, I mean, just leaves were falling. It was like two feet deep and they were going. And I said, he's left. There's nobody else. And I saw her and her 12-year-old boy out there raking those leaves by themselves. And then I found out he died and that's why they were raking them leaves. Brenda and I just felt so bad. We got him. We put our clothes on. I said, here, we're going to take care of your leaves. You go, go inside. You take care of something else. We start raking the leaves. Went over and baked a pie and said, we are so sorry. We had no clue. And we apologize for not knowing. And I said, you know what? I'm going to sit here and I'm going to start finding a way that we can start engaging people. So you know where it started? God started dealing with us about how we treated our servers in a restaurant. Here these people work, bust their rear end all day long. And then all of a sudden for some Christians say, where's my water? Please don't let my sour cream touch my refried beans. We start picking on the dumbest things and so mean and rude and cruel. We talk in tongues and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And so we just start simply doing one little thing. We start, first of all, stop being jerks and start being nice. And I decided, well, you know, we're going to sit here and pray and we're going to tip anyway. So I just started asking them. I said, hey, listen, when my wife and I pray, listen, we like to, we're just so grateful that you'd serve us today. Is there anything we can pray for you, your family, your job, something going on, maybe a friend? We, we're just so thankful that you would serve us today. Is there anything we can pray for you when we pray? And I'm going to tell you every single time, if there's been one time we've been rejected, every time people just drop their jaw, they just start looking and some will start crying and say, well, let me tell you what's going on and just start unloading. And then all of us, when we're done, we just sit there and we just say, listen, uh, listen, just thank you for serving. And then we're done. We don't leave a dollar. We don't leave a Dutch buck. I'm in Grand Rapids, Dutch buck, that's all you get. No, no, I told my people, I said, if you're a Dutch buck person, don't you even pray for anybody. Act like a heathen, act like an atheist. Do not do this. I'm serious. And I said, you leave a minimum of 20%. At the minimum 20%, you go be up above and beyond. We've gone above and beyond. We've, we brought in, and all of a sudden, we found out one where well, she's pregnant, and, and here come our people with loads of diapers at, at the Logan's restaurant, and just stacking her up with all these diapers. She getting ready to get, and it just blows them away because the gift opens the way to the giver and ushers them to the presence of God. I didn't mean to get into all that, but simply what happened is that our kids, we started the Holy Spirit. We were evangelists. We weren't pastors. We, in a hot day, and just cold, cold bottles of water. We moved to Dallas, and so we were right by Section 8 housing. So we just started knocking on these apartment doors, bringing light bulbs, and 
handing out our the church that we attended here. If you ever need anything, this we just want you to pray. We need to pray for you. We just you're here there for you if you need anything. And we just started deciding that servant serving people, no matter what, without any strings attached, without any thank you, was going to be the heart of who Sam and Brenda were to try to impact people for Jesus Christ. And that has trickled down all the way to our church. So when it comes to Grand Rapids First, this is not bragging. They're going to know it's the church that's going to serve. And they all wear blue shirts. And I just, I'm just to the place I told my people, when Jesus Christ takes the church in the rapture, will they notice that we are missing? And if they will not notice that our church is missing or that you are missing, if they don't notice we're missing, then we are not doing our job. I want them to know that when Jesus takes a church, that church is missing. They so impacted because of their heart to serve like Jesus Christ served. That is our DNA. That's what it was for me. What is it for you? There ought to be something that the Spirit of God gets so on you that it becomes something that permeates that leader's heart, that it starts affecting everything. It's called, you know, what the, the corporate world has it. They call it branding. I mean, come on, go get a bucket of chicken. I mean, go go to go to KFC. Everybody knows it. We do chicken right. I, I want them to know that you do church right. Amen. What's the DNA? What's he calling you to do? Everybody, you, I mean, Taco Bell. You remember, talk, you know, come on, Taco Bell's right over here. You remember, run to the border. You know, for me, it was run to the bathroom. But get your, get your DNA. What is it? What is the DNA? What is that that God has called you to do? And that's thought the Holy Spirit, because when you get around the Spirit of God, Moses knew the mission and the assignment and the passion of his heart. He didn't deviate from anything else. What is the Holy Spirit? And the only place to find that is in the encounter with the presence of God of his unique stamp and DNA on you. And once that gets in you, once that gets in you, it's not only important that you know what God, the Spirit's called you for unique vision or brand of whatever you are, but it's important that the vision must permeate throughout all the people that serve around you. It is my responsibility that what God has given us as an agenda, core values or whatever it is, it is my responsibility to make sure that it's being reproduced because everybody is an interim, that it's all in them. And that's what I discovered is actually what helps me in my lack is when I start making sure, because if I don't have vision, they won't have a vision. And once I have the vision, can I tell you that if I don't steward the vision and the DNA of what God wants, other people will create their own vision for you. And that's what happens with so much dysfunction. Moses did this with Joshua. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 34. It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. For Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, and did as the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua didn't flow from a different spirit. He flowed from the same spirit as Moses to accomplish the vision of God. Now, he was unique in his style of ministry. But that had to flow from Moses down to him, to all the people. This is what God's called us to do. And then when you look in the Old Testament, it's very unique. I think it's a beautiful picture of what God's really talking about. When God puts something in us that we start looking for those to put it into. I really believe he does. You know, when the Bible looks at the priest, they would anoint them from the top of the head. That picture of that anointing, the spirit of God on that leader, it flowed down their head. And then all of a sudden it go down the side of their face, go down their beards, go down to their loins. And it went all the way to the tail of their garment down to their toes, all the way to the tail end. And here's what I believe is absolutely important, that the anointing at the end of the garment was just as authentic as the anointing that was on the top of the head. 
So what is ever on the head of the leader, the head of that marriage, the head of that family, that anointing ought to trickle down all the way that it is just as authentic at the bottom as at the top. In other words, whenever they go to anybody else on our team, whenever they ever go to someone in facility care that's sweeping the floor, they ought to be able to meet that person and know exactly the vision that Pastor Sam has. That's how important it is. And we are really serious about it. We are really serious about it. That the same anointing that is on Pastor Sam is just authentic at the very bottom. That they can meet anybody in our leadership and know exactly what the purpose of that church is to do and what their heart is. Exactly know what it is. All the way down to the bottom. You say, do you really believe it? I, I, I firmly believe it. I know it takes years. It takes a long time. But I firmly believe it. And you got to always steward it. It's never, ever done. I don't know if any of you ever read uh, the book by James Belasco. It's called uh, Teaching the Elephant to Dance. And it's empowering change in your organization. And he, and he started following leaders. And he started uh, following this doctor, Dr. Cooley. He was one of the, uh, just a very famous heart surgeon. And uh, so he wanted to follow him because he was always able to develop other people around him. It was just incredible. And uh, so he said he just wanted to follow him and then interview him. So he follows him, and Velasco's just like, you know, would you think a surgeon would be? He's going from each chart to each chart, meeting with each one of the residents. He's going through. He has very little time. He's saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. Go to the next one, this, 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 this. Okay. He said, finally, he says he's getting ready to go to surgery. He's getting ready to go scrub up to go into surgery. And he said, there's a janitor mopping the floor. And he said, Dr. Cooley stops and sits there and holds this 10-minute conversation with the janitor. And he said, this guy must be pretty important. I mean, he must obviously know him very well or something because he, I mean, he really spent some time with this janitor. He goes on in to scrub up and he says, he enters his janitor. He said, uh, tell me, he said, I noticed that Dr. Dr. Cooley spent a, a significant amount of time with you. He says, what, uh, what do you do here? He said, that janitor didn't blink an eye. He said, I save lives. The janitor mopping the floor was so consumed with the mission and the value of what Dr. Cooley was doing that all the way down to him, he didn't see it as just being a janitor, just mopping a floor, just cleaning up every mess. He knew that what my do depends on those people's lives being saved. And I believe that that can happen in the world out there. It ought to happen through every single person within our ministry, that we are here to save the lives of every single person. Whether we roll up cords, whether we're cleaning a toilet, whether we're sitting there working in the nursery, every single person from the top down is here to save people's lives. Can you say amen to that. And we have to manage that. I want them to meet a janitor and know exactly the passion of the heart of this church. Exactly. And I mean, it takes time. I mean, I, I, I spend time going to my facilities director. I stop with even people that are facility grounds where I'll stop. They get, a, they get a tractor. I say, let me drive the tractor. I want to try out the new tractor. They, Pastor, what do you want to do to drive tractor? Because everything we do is so important. Because the altar call doesn't happen when I say bow your heads. The altar call happens when they see how clean that the, the parking lot is and the lawn is being taken care of and the toilets are clean. That's when the altar call starts. That's when it begins. That spirit. So what's important? What's important is that we are responsible for the flow of that coming all the way to the top all the way to the bottom, that is just as authentic as be preaching. And the thing that has to happen is you can't let them dilute or pollute your message as a leader.
Don't let them dilute it or don't let anybody pollute it. When I mean diluting it, diluting your message or your mission weakens what you say. They subtract or they bring or they devalue what others are doing or what you're doing in the leadership to win people. Don't let anybody dilute it. Yeah, I know, but he just, he's only been here a couple years. And I know he's just, they're just excited. Don't let anybody devalue or dilute the mission and the message. You show the importance all the way down. Don't let them pollute the message. Polluting is not taken away from it. Polluting is adding more to it that you never intended to put to it. And sometimes some people, you give them a little bit of authority, they'll always add a little extra and show they're a little closer to you than the rest of the team is so they can add a little bit more to show their level of authority. Don't ever let them pollute and take more authority. The Pharisees did it all the time. My goodness, Jesus come to bring the gospel of redemption. They're going to add more rules and laws just so they can keep the authority. You cannot let them allow to dilute it or pollute it. And this is what Moses did. This is what Moses did. Let the same spirit that you put on me, God, let it go all the way down to the bottom, even to the 70 elders. Numbers eleven seventeen. He says, I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take the spirit that is on you and put the spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. In your lack, somebody else has, has to help us carry the vision of God. And in ministry, help isn't help unless they have the spirit that God has given you. And that spirit only comes one thing, face-to-face -face time with what God is showing you. Now, I'm not a Mount Sinai leader. I am not a Mount Sinai leader. I've been to the mountain. I've talked with God and everybody. This is what we're going to do. I'm the kind of guy that I hear from God. I believe I have a strong impression of what he wants. And then I'll put some incredible people around me. And that's the leader staff. I'll put them around me and I'll hear some of the greatest wisdom from board of directors, from elders. I'll hear and I'll bring that before them because I'm a process guy. And then I always got to circle back and make the decision. But I'm not a Mount Sinai leader with thus saith the Lord, this is what we're going to do. Because sometimes I discover the voice of the Holy Spirit, God can use through a lot of great people around me that really want to move the vision forward. And every leader, every leader feels like Moses sometimes. You can't carry this burden alone. Every leader often feels like Moses felt when he's leading the children of Israel. He's got, a, he's got an army behind him that wants to kill him. He's got a Red Sea in front of him that's getting ready to close up. Pharaoh's behind him, the people from him, and you say, what in the world do I do? And here's what God says to him. God says, what do you have in your hand? We all get to these points of our ministry where we're going, we don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes. And that's what Moses was in. And he's looking behind him. He looks in front of him and he says, God, we're going to die. God says, what do you have in your hand? And he says, I have a stick. I keep looking at that. He didn't have an army. He didn't have weapons. He had a stick. And I cannot tell you how many times this may even happen to you. How many times I've said, God, there is no way that we can do this. I know you're burning this our heart. I don't know, God. And God never asked me, well, Sam, what's your credit limit at the bank? It's always, Sam, what do you have? 
And I have come to the conclusion that so many times you and I do not do things or step out because we don't have it. And God never asked me for something I do not have, but he always asked me for something that I want to keep in my hand. And when I discovered that, that all you need is a stick, I made a decision a long time ago, friends. If God, if it gets back to another recession and we're down to one buck, we are going to win the city with one buck because all you got to do is take the one buck, turn it loose and take faith and let go of it out of your hands and watch God do supernatural things with it when we keep saying what we don't have and just use what you do have. I, I, we started a ministry two years ago called Go Serve and we were trying to find how do we empower our people just to take a gift and find somebody in need to build relationships with unchurched and non-church people and unbelievers, use the gift and use the gift to build a relationship with that person and keep speaking into their lives to ultimately bring them into relationship, invite them to know Jesus Christ and ultimately be a part of the body of Christ. So we started this ministry called Go Serve where we acquire uh, retail products from big box retail companies like Costco, Walgreens, and they're sort of donated products, and we acquire them. And then we started training our people how to use these items. And we have an app that we have now what's called a pod, a point of distribution, where we now we have it. And you can see, well, there's a couch in there. There's a leaf blow in there. There's a car polisher in there. It's all crazy. There's diapers in there. And people start finding the need personally in the pew. We call them heroes. You find the person, and we're going to give you the ability. They take that, that product, and they take it, and they go minister to somebody in the name of Jesus. And then they put in the app, I prayed with them, invited them to church or whatever it was. Well, we thought this is not just for us. We want to do this for other churches. And now we have 103 churches that are now doing this very thing where the people at church are trained to do this. And, 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 and I just want to tell you, just this past year, it's been this two years, we have distributed over $8.7 million with the retail product through the hands of church members in church, connecting with people, building relationships so they can invite them to Jesus Christ, invite them to the house of God, be a part of the family of God. 103 churches are doing this now. You say, well, that's unbelievable. We could never do that. Well, can I tell you where it started? It all started. It didn't start at $8.7 million. I'll tell you where it started. It started with us. Stop being a jerk when you're serving, a, when you have a, a waitress with you. It all started with just taking a bottle of water. It all started with being kind. And God says it. And he said, when you start throwing out the stick, you just wait what God keeps adding to you when you just throw down the stick. And sometimes you just got to throw down the staff, the stick, and watch him do something powerful. Whatever it is for you, I'd stop the excuses. I have something that God has placed in it. God, show me the stick that I need to let, let go of. And sometimes that staff is literally the staff. It's the volunteers you have in your ministry. And there has to be at some place where all of a sudden, if you don't learn how to stretch your staff, your Red Sea will never part. There are people on the team. There are people around you that God, they're waiting. And you say, well, they don't have quite the ability. Come on, start working with them and start letting them be released and watch start God start growing that ministry. And you cannot have even one staff person. I will not. That's not willing to be stretched like God is stretching us. Somehow they start getting this. One of the things I love about it is I love our people. I love our staff. We're always working on training things. I won't get into all those things that we do and how, how, we, how we help them manage that, how we do it in real time. But one of the things that I really love about our team is that the staff isn't just, it doesn't just get stretched and God starts parting with what you start seeing in a person, start developing, letting it go. 
letting them fail, see where it goes. But part, sometimes I just believe for Moses, the staff was there when he got so weary. He was so exhausted from all the people that he just leaned on that staff and just said, I got to have a break. And when you're leaning on the staff, you just hope that staff doesn't snap when you put all your weight on it. And I got to tell you, when we went through what we went through, Sarah, there was a point where Brent and I just put all our weight and leaned on the staff instead of them leaning on us. And they didn't snap. In fact, we started discovering some incredible things in them when our lack and our weakness was there when we leaned on them. Great stuff comes out of them when you stretch the staff. So some folks, I know you got to develop them, but just turn it loose. And then here, I want to close with this. Y'all come back to the lack. It's the leader's stutter. What I've noticed is that God uses a leader's lack. All of us have got a stutter. And it's interesting, of all the things that God asked this guy to do, all the things God asked Moses to do, he asked him to do the thing that he's incapable of doing, and that's talking well. Why would God ask a guy who stutters slow as speech, can't get his words together, incoherent at times, and God says, that's what I want to use him to do. I'm going to use his lack, and I'm going to use it. Why would God do that? When God challenges you to do great things for him, our insecurities come out. He exposes them. And why would God ask him to do that? I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. He says, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness, in my insults, my hardships, my persecutions, the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've just really come to the conclusion that my God looks best when Sam Reifkogel looks worst. And I don't sit there and always dwell on the lack. What's your stutter? What's something in your hand you have now that you made excuses that God wants you to say, turn loose of it? There may be a person who said, they're just not quite, but just give them a little bit to see Red Sea's part. Some things happen in your ministry you've never seen before. Diagnose the lack, but don't dwell on your lack. Because diagnosing the lack makes you do what Moses did and makes all of us do. Puts us on our knees and say, God, you've got to fill in the gaps and you got to send me people and you got to show me how to start reproducing the kind of people that I can stretch out and seed red seeds part. But don't, don't dwell on it because God really does use them. Because he says, see, he called Gideon a mighty man when he wasn't even a mighty man. He's calling y'all to do stuff and you say, I am just not there. Just take his word for it. Uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put it to you this way. I heard this story, and I want to close with this. I heard this story, a true story that happened in San Francisco school district area. And uh, one particular uh, principal had his, they were really on him because his school was failing. His high school was failing bad. And they couldn't figure out why he was failing bad. So he took his three che teachers and three teachers, and he looked at him. He said, you are my three best teachers. This is the stats. This is what's happening. And he said, um, so I'm going to do something this whole next year. I'm going to take our top 90 students and I'm going to give them to you for this whole year and we're going to study these 90 students. 
So the year passed. At the end of the year, these 90 students were ahead of all the other classes. They were ahead by a half a year. He brought them in, showed the teachers the results. And they were, they said, well, of course, you know, we're your three top teachers and these are your top 90 students. Why wouldn't they be a half a year ahead of everybody else? We gave them special attention. They were shared only among us three teachers. He says, well, let me tell you the truth about what just happened. He said this past year, he says, those were not our top 90 students. They were randomly selected off the computer. I just told you they were our top 90 students. We just randomly picked them. And he said, let me tell you the other thing. You are not our top three teachers. He said, I told you that you were our top three teachers. And you believed it. You started behaving that way. And you started believing it about those kids because I told you that's what they were. And I'm going to tell you something. The enemy will tell you, you don't have the right place. This is not the right community. This is never going to work. I'll tell you what you ought to do in your lack. It's what I do. I get alone with him and I let him start telling me who he called me to be and what my original purpose and what's special, Sam, that I want you to do. And you start finding other people and you start speaking it over them. But they say, Pastor, I can't. And you keep walking with the journey. And I promise you, friends, you're going to see God accomplish some of the greatest things in your ministry because he calls you something that nobody else will call you. You are children of the Most High God. You are not only that, but you are servants called by the Most High God. You've been anointed by God. You've been appointed by God. And you have a purpose from God and you will complete your assignment. And how many say, Father, I receive that in the name of Jesus Christ. Can, can, we just, can we just stand up and just lift our hands like spiritual funnels and worship? And I just want one of the, come on, musicians to come up. Just